episode two of the unnamed podcast. Uh, I think we I, should call it Magic Beans. Okay. I'll focus group that. Geo Sapiens got shot down. Magic Beans is probably better. Um, I had three stories, and huh. uh, and you and I spoke briefly yesterday about what we both realize is the biggest story. But um, in addition to unrest in China, uh, I'm intrigued by the Macron visit. Um, I think the oil market question is interesting for two reasons. One, it's down in the U.S., but two, something's about to happen with Russia in Europe that's going to mess it all up, I think. And then, of course, unrest in China, the like of which we haven't seen since Tiananmen Square, 1989. Um, shall we start there, Sam? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, uh, when we talk about China or anything, but especially China, and I know you've heard me say this before, but it's always important to ask ourselves two basic questions while we're discussing these things. And those questions are, what do people know and how do they know it? Uh, and in the case of ourselves and other Western people, uh, we have seen video of all the protests or n numerous protests, that is. Uh, and we, we and that's what we know. And how we know it is that the media companies that give us all of our news are giving us this news also. On the other hand, people in China know about some of the protests and they know it mainly through social media. They're not seeing it on their television screens. Because that's state run. That's right. And the state is not showing them this. State's not promoting protests against itself. That's right. And so when when you see video of the protests, you will see people holding up their phones and many of them are live streaming the protests to Chinese social networking sites. Meanwhile, government censors are working frantically to try and remove all of them. But there's so many streams that they can't possibly get all of them. It's whack-a-mole. Right, exactly. Uh, and of course, at the same time, Western media companies are searching those Chinese social media sites, trying to get those streams and use them for their reports. I find it frustrating that almost no American media companies have dedicated personnel in China. Uh, for instance, I saw a... Sam, that would be a year after year budget item that okay. would only pay dividends now, man. Okay, but the BBC I'm has being, people. Of course, I'm being right. facetious. That's why corporate bookkeeping is stupid for exactly. proper journalism. One thing I thought was interesting, or two things, I should say. First, I saw a, a report on CNN, uh, and the correspondent that was giving the report was identified as reporting for CNN, not CNN's correspondent. That's right. You get a freelancer in market, Sam. You save money that way. That, well, that was my suspicion, but I, since you're more of a broadcast news veteran than I am, uh, I wanted to see if I could confirm that. The second interesting point was that- I mean, I'm not confirming that explicit specifically because I haven't I seen the report, that, but yeah. that would not surprise me. No. Uh, by the way, it would also not surprise me if the Chinese government 
what didn't exactly rush to provide work permits to American television journalists. Again, I don't know that, uh, but right. it might not like, be priority one. Exactly. Uh, however, uh, CNBC does have a dedicated Chinese bureau. So again, I find it a little interesting and frustrating that as far as, uh, I guess, Universal, I guess, is the parent company of, mm-hmm. of NBC. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, China is a business story as opposed sure. to, uh, you know, just a regular news story. Never mind that it's uh, always referred to as the single most important geopolitical relationship, bilateral ge- geopolitical relationship on the face of the earth. No, it's just a business story, right. apparently. Um, so, Sam, you're trying to make news decisions with thinking about news. You got to get out of that, man. PNL, PNL, brother. PNL. User generated content. Why would we pay a correspondent? Yeah, look, I, I totally understand. I, we it, could it, do it, a whole year on that. I, I would prefer not to. Yeah, uh, instead, what I would prefer to do is to uh, backtrack a little ways. Okay. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, that's quite all right. So I heard from an economist podcast that this whole protest cycle started from a fire in a building in which people were locked down. And I believe 10 died that's down due to zero COVID. That's been widely reported. And that's exactly what I was about to get to. That fire, by the way, was in Ulamji, which is the capital of Xinjiang province, which, as we might recall, is predominantly a Uyghur province. And has the Chinese government has in Xinjiang been accused of something approaching genocide against the Uyghur people who are so locking 10 people in a burning building is probably not all that sadly. Well, again, we don't know that. We don't uh, know. Again, what do we know? What do right. people know and how do they know it? I don't think that on Chinese news television. Han Chinese, that is the pr- predominant ethnic group in China, uh, are hearing about the supposed genocide in Xinjiang. However, uh, to the extent that many of the protests have been dominated by people like college students and university students, for example, some of them at least do know that the Uyghurs are the disenfranchised minority of their own country. Uh, by the way, uh, even though Xinjiang is, of course, the Uyghur heartland, there are Uyghurs in large cities throughout China, just as disenfranchised minorities in any country will bi- migrate to large cities in that country in search of better economic opportunities. That doesn't mean that Han Chinese university students in Shanghai personally know a single Uyghur, but they might see them, for instance, working in restaurants or other sorts of menial jobs. And again, they do know that they are the minority disenfranchised group in their country. So that's why I constantly want to dwell on things like what do people know and how do they know it? So, but to return to the apartment fire, this has been widely identified as the proximate trigger for the the weekend of protests that we saw over this past weekend. However, uh, days before that fire, 
there were violent protests in a different Chinese city called Guangzhou, which is the nearest large city to Hong Kong, which, as we might recall, has also seen widespread protests for a, for number, a number of reasons for a number of months. Over the decreasing independence of Hong Kong as a Chinese territory. Just as a note here, that's not near the Uyghur province. No, nowhere. All right. It's just outside of Hong Kong. And in fact, it's only become a large city in recent decades because it is right next to Hong Kong. The protests in Guangzhou were started in a factory owned by a company called Foxconn. And that factory in Guangzhou makes the majority of the world's iPhones. Foxconn, by the way, is a Taiwanese company. How can that be? Well, because, in fact, there's quite a lot of bilateral trade and multilateral trade between Taiwan and China, and in this case, the United States and every other country that buys iPhones. So, and of course, Apple is an American company. So there's a trilateral business relationship in this one factory. What happened there was that there were a number of things. First off, new hires at the factory were promised what we would refer to as signing bonuses, which were withheld. So this. Oh, that'll make people protest. Yes. Well, but not by itself. Then there was a municipal COVID lockdown in Guangzhou. uh, And people were like, to hell with this. I'm not getting paid. And now I can't. They were locked in the factory. Now, this is an enormous facility that has dormitories. So it's not like they were just sitting there on the assembly line. Right. But apparently they didn't have enough food. And food was not being allowed into them during this lockdown. So they busted out of the factory and had, in fact, violent protests. This is, again, before the apartment fire. Now, I don't know how many people in China found out about the factory protests. But but we can assume it's not zero just due to social media. Some of them must have found out about it. Uh, And... I wanted to mention this just because of the trilateral international relationship here. Apple uh, uh, has already begun trying to diversify their supply chain into countries like India. Foxconn uh, has uh, recently, I think uh, two years ago or so, opened a factory in Wisconsin. So because of the rising tensions over Taiwan, there's already a move to maybe not have all, you know, so many iPhones produced in this one factory. And which, also due to zero COVID policy. Exactly. Right. Which is not doing the Chinese economy any favors. Before so we go any fur- before we go any further, just kind of a dummy level question here or dummy level statement. These zero The zero COVID policy, which China is desperate to enforce, is not only just a problem for Chinese people who are having their human rights pretty much trampled on, but also like China makes everything in the world. 
like everything's manufactured in China. Well, not everything, but quite a lot. But of like a, an enormous percentage, as you said, most of the world's iPhones, for example. There are that's... widespread concerns that the zero COVID policy in China could contribute to a global recession. Right. Simply because enough stuff gets built in China, gets manufactured in China, that if yep. they are hell bent on lockdowns, out of balance with the rest of the economy and demand in the world. Well, not just that. Uh, for instance, China is also a large consumer of goods. For, uh, for instance, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz just a few weeks ago uh, visited Beijing uh, with a contingent of German business leaders in tow, hoping to expand the already robust trade ties that Germany has with China as an exporter right. to China. is a China. big market. Right. Uh, and so it's not just China as a manufacturer, but also as a consumer of high value, high tech goods that they don't quite have the technological wherewithal to produce on their own. They're trying to develop it, sure, but it's not been an easy process for them. And so if they're locked down, that's that hurts demand. That's right. They don't need to import as many high-tech elect, uh, electro-optical components from Siemens, for example. Right. I, so I just wanted to zoom out there that like what happens in China, manufacturing or demand, really <clears throat> rattles the rest of the economy. Of globally. course. People used to say about the United States that when America... Uh, sneezes, Europe catches, catches a cold. A cold right. Now it's when China sneezes, everybody catches a cold. Uh, and that what? But what would you expect? They are the second largest economy in the world. That's only what you should imagine would happen. But to zoom out even further, the the zero COVID policy has been in place now for three years. The reason we call it COVID nineteen is because mm -hmm. it started in twenty nineteen at the end of that year in China. So it's three years that they've been following this policy. It's a very long time. I remember also right then at the start uh, that the government put up a brand new hospital in the region of Wuhan, which is, of course, where the pandemic started. But that doesn't seem to be something they've continued doing. One of the reasons they that they're concerned about lifting the zero COVID policy is that they don't believe they have enough ICU Hospital. beds wow. to take the large increase in the number of cases. For instance, the recent lockdowns have occurred because there are record numbers of new cases of COVID-19 that have only been set recently. Do the Chinese have the same vaccines we have? They don't, but I'll get to that. Okay. These record numbers of cases are as far as I know, the highest number is 40,000 for the whole country, which, as you might recall, is nothing compared to the, the daily case totals we were seeing a couple of years ago or a year or a year and a half right. ago. We were seeing six figures of cases, you know, not routinely, but it wasn't un, at all unheard of. So uh, they were it, it's polar opposites in response, the United States and China. Exactly. So they've stuck with zero covid for three years. Not just that, but Xi Jinping, the leader of China himself, has championed zero covid as the national policy. And this is part of he seems personally invested in it. He, well, 
as we know, in the party Congress last month, he consolidated his own power even further than he has been for 10 years that he's been in power. And so he, he seems personally invested in everything. That's kind of the whole point, is that what Xi Jinping says is what the country is going to do. There's a whole required curriculum of Xi Jinping thought in Chinese schools. And he is the first Chinese leader since Mao to have that happen. There wasn't any Hu Jintao thought or, uh, uh, or anything Deng like Xiaoping, that. Deng Xiaoping, no. 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 Uh, it's only there was Mao Zedong thought and now there's Xi Jinping thought. So, uh, and of course, the protests have to be profoundly embarrassing for Xi, right? Because he just came off this elaborate pageant of power in which he was installed for a third term. And again, what do Chinese people know and how do they know it? They know that Xi Jinping just got a third term. And for many of them, that's the first time they've ever seen that happen for a Chinese leader. They know that Xi Jinping exercises unparalleled power in Chinese recent Chinese history anyway. And so they feel as though power is being consolidated while they themselves have been or have power being taken away from them. And again, for instance, in the early days of the pandemic, we had quarantines and you know what we were calling lockdowns. Other countries had quarantines. Everybody had quarantines. China had quarantines. But one of the problems about a quarantine is that nothing happens. That's the whole point. People don't go out. Business is not done. People don't go to school. Not, and so it's difficult to report. It's difficult enough to report on things that do happen. It's hard if you're a journalist of any kind to report about nothing happening. And so as let me result, tell you about rain delays when you have to stay on the air during exactly. a rain. Delay. It's terrible. As a result, the baseball quarantine. Everybody's quarantine sort of got treated the same, but they weren't. The right. quarantines in China have always been much worse than they are here. Draconian. Just about anywhere else. You're locked in your building. Those people at the Foxconn factory were locked into the factory. So when the, the, the apartment fire comes up, you don't actually have to know anything about the persecution of the Uyghurs. You just have to know that there was a fire in the building and people couldn't get out. And if you're being locked down right then in Shanghai, you're like, that could happen to me. Could, this could be my building. Not just that, but at the party Congress, the, in, the new leadership that was named apart from Xi Jinping on the standing committee of the, of the Politburo, the number two position that is right next to Xi Jinping uh, is going to be held by a fellow named Li Qiang, who, until that time, was the Communist Party boss in Shanghai and oversaw what had been a very draconian lockdown in Shanghai earlier this year. So even if you don't live in Shanghai, you get, you get the message. If you lock down, that makes Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping happy. He will promote you. And so... Even if you don't live in Shanghai, you could say, well, what's the party boss in my district going to do? He has seen Li Qiang become promoted by locking down. 
So Xi Jinping doesn't even have to tell anybody to lock down. Regional leaders will just do it, would have every incentive to do it just automatically. Right. There's a perverse incentive and none of it has anything to do with the welfare of the actual Chinese people. So now, in fact, after the party congress, uh, they announced that they would now be pursuing what was called a dynamic zero COVID policy. Uh, but nobody clever really, title. Yeah, nobody really spelled out what that was going to mean. And since the protests, they've made a uh, some gestures of saying, "Well, we're going to relax this and that restriction here and or there." Uh, and they've also announced, by the way, that they're going to make a redoubled effort to vaccinate the elderly population of China, uh, large numbers of whom, I think about 40%, are not fully boosted. And this gets back to your earlier question of how effective are their vaccines? Do they, yeah, they, they aren't using the Western vaccines. They're not using the MNR, MNRA vaccines that we're, that we're using in the West. And so therefore they're having to manufacture their own to handle their enormous population, which yeah, is that, why 40% they, of people aren't properly boosted. They, yeah, they don't believe, people, the scientists don't believe that their vaccines are as effective as the MNRA, mRNA vaccines. And they won't take ours on principle? The European Union, in fact, very recently offered them mRNA vaccines. I'm unclear in my own mind as to the status of any such transfer. uh, It is possible that some of the people protesting know that. Oh, exactly. And that's not all of them, mind you. But But some. What what more do they need to know? They they already know that. Xi Jinping is an unprecedentedly un, un, has unprecedented power. They already know that they could get locked in a burning building. They already know that they've been getting locked down for three over years and over again for three years. And they have no idea when the next time is that they're going to get locked down. It's not just the lockdown, by the way, but you have to get if you're, there's an outbreak in, in anywhere near. Oh, you get shipped to a facility. You could, or yeah. but even without that, you they're there. You have to get tested every single day. Yeah. Every day. Uh, that's this is why one of the uh, protests actually, which re-erupted in Guangzhou after the protests seemed to be subsiding. I'm sorry, the, Guangzhou is by Hong Kong. That's right. That's yeah. where the Foxconn factory protest originated. Uh, just yesterday or the day before, uh, some of the protesters on the streets of Guangzhou uh, demolished a testing booth, right? Because tests themselves in their mind, seemingly, are a symbol of, of oppression of, of, of the repression of the of the government. So uh, now we could go the on courage, about the courage one must summon as a Chinese citizen to protest a state that is unimaginably pervasive, ubiquitous, whatever. I mean, Orwellian. What should I be saying? I would need to push back against that a little bit. Okay. Uh, Again, to the extent that uh, the protesters are university students or young people of any kind, by the way. Uh, So you're saying they're not courageous, they're just young? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying (laughs) at all. What I'm I'm saying is they have no memory of Tiananmen Square. Again, what do people know? That's actually dangerous for them. And how do they know it? Right, because right. nobody's reading about Tiananmen Square That's in high right. school the, there. The no, government won't course. allow any public discussion of Tiananmen Square. And now that Square, is so Orwellian. They don't know about it. 
in any detail. Some oh. of them do. OK, uh, but in the purpose of the government has been for them to not know about things like this. Oh, God, and, that's the, terrifying when you think about it. I would say also, by the way, that, yes, these are the largest protests in China since Tiananmen Square. They're a small, small okay. fraction of the size of the protests that led up to Tiananmen Square. Which so was it's nowhere near on that level right. at this point. Now, we could talk about this for a very long time. But if we zoom out even further and we ask ourselves, because it's not just about COVID-19, it's obviously about authoritarian government. And human rights, yeah. Right, which many of the protesters have been explicit in saying. I found it interesting, actually, that one of the symbols of the protest has been the blank sheet of paper, uh, which, uh, and I wonder if any of them saw that being used as a protest symbol in Russia near the start of the Ukraine war, where one or two people went out onto Red Square with blank yeah. pieces of paper just to see how long it would take them to Before get arrested. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, the answer was not very long. But if we zoom out and we talk about authoritarian repressive governments, especially ones that have essentially openly adversarial relations with the United States, the ones with the highest populations are one, China, two, Russia, and three, Iran. And protests in all three. All three of them have been encountering almost unprecedented levels of instability that they've inflicted upon themselves through one form or another of authoritarian overreach. Different forms of overreach specific to each country. And some people might say in character of the authoritarian character uh, in with of the authoritarian nature of each particular regime sure. in Iran, it's repression of women, women. in Russia, it's uh, totalitarian militaristic adventure in, uh, in China. It's just blanket repression of everything. Uh, so, these guys need a page out of a Drogan's book, man. You got to be a chill authoritarian or something. <laughs> right. Uh, and so meanwhile, that's uh, him. Right? Drogan. Is that how I say his name? Turkish guy. Erdogan. 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 Yeah. That guy. Erdogan. Uh, meanwhile, here in the United States, Joe Biden, the doddering elderly leader of a doddering elderly Western style democracy. Biden just turned 80. That's right. Is going from victory to victory. He's had some setbacks here and there. And these victories, I should say, have been narrow, hard fought and incomplete. But he has been winning domestically, uh, unlike the, the authoritarians. And by the way, his original victory was in spite of Donald Trump's attempt to essentially put the United States in the authoritarian club. So if you at the beginning of this year, I wouldn't have thought that Joe Biden would be in a stronger domestic position than any of these more authoritarian regimes. But I would have been wrong. And you bring up Biden and it's very I like that you framed it that way, because Biden has explicitly said from the outset, 
that the the great challenge of the 21st century is Western style democracy against authoritarianism. Correct. And like, he's had to fight that struggle both domestically and uh, uh, and this, I think, underlines the importance of the war in Ukraine. Right. Because as we know, China has not been sending weapons to Russia to fight the war, but they have been bankrolling the war through enormous energy purchases. Uh, meanwhile, Iran is sending weapons to Russia to fight the war. These on the low tech uh, drone aircraft that they've been using to try to wipe out critical infrastructure inside of Ukraine. And and who is opposing them? Joe Biden, along with the, the, the rest of the Western alliance. So uh, that's how the geopolitical dimensions play out in part because of these protests. It's not just that that uh, Biden is slowly restabilizing his own country. It's that uh, he can point to the instability that authoritarian regimes are inflicting upon themselves. And keep in mind that Xi Jinping and the rest of the Chinese leadership have been for years now holding up their country as a model for other countries to follow in explicit contradistinction to the model of the United States. This is not incidental. It's part of the overall geopolitical struggle. Just to illustrate that, we don't know this, maybe you don't know this, but like Chinese nightly news is not showing these protests. They would have been 100% showing every night the protests in the U.S. in 2020, right? With the explicit comparison of that Western model bad. I, I can't confirm that. You can't that confirm might, it, but like we can, that's probably a reason. I think that's right? probably yeah. right. But again, uh, this is why we have to ask ourselves these sorts of questions. Right. What do we know and how do we know it? Well, what does anybody know and how do they know it? Uh, and uh, and again, this is especially important when we ask when we when we're looking at something like China that has a totally different sort of information ecosystem from our own. And we would do ourselves a disservice to assume that it has the same sort of information ecosystem as we have, because it really just doesn't. It's a pretty good episode, too. I thought so. But I knew going in that... Uh, well, you told this, me, you're like, I could talk about China for... There, this one topic alone. There, it's I fascinating. Mean, there's so much more that we could I, talk about with this. But, you know, we can leave that for another time. Well, I, in broadcasting, we would say we'll tease next week. Maybe we'll talk about gas prices and the, the Russian... I'm confident that gas prices will still be an important issue by this yeah. time next week. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we'll have any shortage of things to talk about. Let's put it that way.